Bibles, I trust that you do, if you can open to Revelation chapter 1. This morning we begin our much-anticipated, at least by me, I'm, I'm assuming by some other people, but our much-anticipated leap into the book of Revelation, which is the only prophetic book in the New Testament in contrast to 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament. As I shared last week, I read recently that Revelation is the book people in the church most want to hear taught because they don't understand it. At the same time, Revelation is the book that pastors least want to preach because we don't understand it. So into this tension, we now enter. And in most Christian circles, the book of Revelation is either wildly popular, popular or it is completely ignored. Some treat this book like it's the decoder ring that will allow us to know all the events concerning the end times. You know, others respond to Revelation with sentiments that mirror the sentiments of Dorothy and Wizard of Oz, dragons, beasts, and harlots, oh my, um, where we don't know what to do or um, what to make of all these things. And what I mean by that is when we enter the book of Revelation, often we don't know where to focus and we don't know how to walk through this book. In J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit Bilbo, memorably tells his nephew Frodo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. And entering the book of Revelation can be as dangerous, because if we're not careful, we can be swept off our feet with minor details. So to avoid this pitfall, we must stick to the path of this book. So some people just don't know how to walk or where to walk in this book, and, and others will say, well, I can't understand the book of Revelation, so I don't even try. Even though Jesus promised a blessing for those who read it, for those who hear it, and those who obey it. So ultimately, we have to understand the value of this book. I think of the words of Wilbur Smith, who says, this is preeminently a book for a troubled age, for an age in which the darkness deepens. Fear spreads over all mankind and monstrous powers, godless and evil, appear on the stage of history as they appear in this book. So this is a book for a troubled age in which darkness deepens, meaning that this is a book for us. It's beneficial to us. Yet let me just say from the beginning this morning and, and just kind of want to go ahead and, and, and Confront this. If you think Revelation was given to answer all of your questions about the, the end times or about current events, you're going to be sorely disappointed by this series. Revelation is in our Bible to reassure us of one thing, and that is this. God wins. God wins. That's the point. That's the point of this book. An ancient legend tells of a general whose army was afraid to fight. The soldiers were frightened, the enemy was too strong, their fortress too high, their weapons were too mighty. The king, however, wasn't afraid, and he knew that his army could win. The question was, how was he going to convince them that they could win? So he had an idea. He told the soldiers that he possessed a magical coin, a prophetic coin, a coin which could foretell the outcome of every battle. He told them that on one side of the coin was an eagle and the other side was a bear. And he said, I'm going to flip this coin in the air. If it lands eagle side up, we will win. If it lands bear side up, we will lose. So the army was silent as the coin was flipped in the air. Soldiers um, 
circled as it fell to the ground. They held their breath as they looked and they shouted when they saw the eagle. They knew their army would win. So bolstered by this assurance of victory, they marched against the castle and they won. It was only after the victory that the king showed the men the coin. The two sides were identical. They had eagles on both sides. And though this story is fictional, the truth is reliable. And the truth is this. Assured victory empowers the army. Assured victory empowers the army. When we know that we're going to win, it gives us the ability, the courage, the boldness to march. When we know that we can't be defeated, when, you, when we know who has won, when we know what's coming, we have the boldness to go. So as wild as this book seems, Revelation is a very simple book. It has one primary, one simple idea, and that is this, God wins. That is what we see. In the words of one theologian, the Bible indicates that the future is in God's hands. And listen to what it says. If the future was in our hands, we would mess it up. Can I get an amen from anybody in the congregation? If the future was in our hands, we would mess it up. If the future was in the devil's hands, we, we would all be led to destruction. Thankfully, the future is in the hands of one who is preparing something better than our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, or our hearts can even imagine. Again, many people fear the book of Revelation or have an unhealthy interest in it. But God designed this book for a different purpose. Revelation is meant to produce in us comfort and courage and hope and praise. I pray that we will come to believe that. So we're going to go ahead and turn to this word and what a word it is. And let me just say today is going to be a little different than normal. It's going to be very technical um, we, we've got some foundations that we have to lay. The whole study will not be like this, but today will be technicals because we have to kind of lay the foundation of what this book is so that we can um, move forward in a correct way. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Revelation 1, 1 through 8 together. And John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of, on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, as we enter into this your word, we thank you for your spirit, the Holy Spirit, spirit of truth that illuminates truth to us and we thank you 
Holy Spirit, for walking with us through this journey and opening our eyes to see the truth and that which is fundamental in this book. Oh God, speak to us and help us to keep our eyes on that which is primary and not lose our focus on things that are secondary. Ultimately, Lord, help us to see Jesus in every chapter of this book. May we praise His name. May we understand the need for those that don't know Him to know Him now. Just have your way. Speak, O God, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So the visions of this book begin, according to verse 1, with God the Father, who in turn gave this to Jesus Christ, who in turn sent his angel to make it known to John, and then John communicated it to um, the church, to the people of God, in particular the church at Asia Minor. So to think of it this way, this whole book starts, it comes from God the Father to Jesus Christ the Son, to his angel, to his servant John, and then to all his servants. Yet ultimately, today's message is entitled, get this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Meaning, this is a message from Jesus, it's about Jesus, and it's belonging to Jesus. Or to put it simpler, he's the point of this book. He's the point. It's all about him. If you read it and don't think much about Jesus, you're getting it wrong. If you read it and think about everything else but Jesus, you have got it wrong. You've messed it up. It is about him. So I think about the Apostle John who writes these words while exiled on an island in Patmos. And we're, we're going to get to that in a minute. And he wrote sometime between A.D. 95 or, or 96. And the beautiful thing is John had previously, in the Gospel of John, reached further back into eternity than any other New Testament writer. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God in the beginning. Now in Revelation, John reaches further into eternity than any other writer. It's a beautiful picture. John understood the eternity of our God. He is Alpha, the beginning. He is the end. He is everything in between. We look to Him. Yet, yeah, but before we unpack today these, these eight verses, we do have to begin with a technical introduction. And I know for some of you that sounds so boring. For others of you, that sounds technical, or others, it just sounds like just doesn't apply to you at all. But I can assure you that we have to understand the details of this book before we're able to jump into this book. So I'm going to try to be as quick as I possibly can, but we're going to look at four details today, all leading to our last detail, which is the application part. So the first truth is this, the construction of this revelation, the construction of this revelation. And when I say construction, what I mean is what type of book is this? So Psalms are poetry, the Gospels are narrative, epistles are letters. So what is the book of Revelation? Strangely enough, verses 1, verse 3, and verse 4 um, answer, but we have three answers. So we see that the book of Revelation is basically three different things. First of all, it's apocalyptic, or it's an apocalyptic proclamation. In verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation means disclosure, or it means unveiling. Strangely enough, it's the only time in this book that that word appears. 
This book is an unveiling of the character of God. It's an unveiling of the program of God, all that God has in store for the world. But it's an unveiling by means of symbols and numbers, which is strange to us. We don't, most of us don't specialize in um, this kind of literature, but the first century church would have because they studied the Old Testament. This is um, part of the writing of that day, but understand this. I think one of the ways to best see the book of Revelation, Revelation is not a puzzle book by which we take all the pieces and put it together. It's a picture book. It's showing us pictures of things that are things to come. And the book is designed to communicate truth um, through pictures and symbols. And that's important for us to understand because we need to realize, hear this, from the very start that not everything in the book of Revelation is intended to be understood literally. And what I mean by that is this. Symbols are meant to be, get this, symbolic. It's just crazy, I know, but symbols are meant to be symbolic. Yet, this also doesn't mean that every verse is symbolic. There are verses where John says, yeah, you better take this literally. This is absolutely literal. For the mo but for the most part, this book is created with symbols and numbers. Just think about how numbers are used in this book. Numbers like 12 and its multiples, like 144,000, symbolize God's people. Numbers like 10 and its multiples of 1,000 describe complete amount of time. The number seven is used to symbolize completion or perfection. Revelation is written to seven churches. We're going to read about seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, all of which symbolize God's complete judgment in Revelation. The number four also symbolizes com completeness, completeness, excuse me, particularly in the world. Sometimes, strangely enough in this book, the numbers four and seven are used Together, we read about four series of seven judgments on earth. Various names of God and Christ are used either four times or seven times. The seven spirits of God are mentioned four times. Jesus is referred as lamb in this book 28 times, which if you can do a little bit of math, that's seven times four. Just follow along with me. And seven of the times where Jesus is the lamb, God the Father are mentioned together. Now, you might be saying, well, that's kind of a stretch. What are you trying to do here? Why are you trying to make all of these things? Here's the picture. This book is apocalyptic, something we're not familiar with. But the point that we need to see is every part of this book is planned and purposeful. God is showing us that he is in control of what's happening, even if it's not in a way that we can simply understand it. This book is apocalyptic, but secondly, this book is prophetic. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I love that verse 3, the word blessed, is the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Verse 3 is the first of, get this, seven blessings in the book of Revelation, meaning there's a complete blessedness to this book. The next to last blessing in this book is found in chapter 22, verse 7, and it says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Thus, verse one, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 3, and verse uh, 7 of chapter 22 are blessing bookends for those who read and keep the words of this book. If we approach Revelation, as many people do, simply to satisfy our intellectual curiosity about the end times, 
we're going to miss the blessing that it has for us. Yet don't miss John's description of this book as a prophecy. So this book is in line with other prophetic books. It's in line with Daniel, as we just studied. It's in line with Ezekiel, with Isaiah, with Jeremiah, with Zechariah. But even though it's in line with those prophecies, don't miss this. Revelation is the climax of all of those prophecies. All of those prophecies are pointing toward Revelation. For all those prophecies are pointing to the magnificent end or really the new beginning that Revelation describes. The whole point is this. Revelation is telling a message, and that message is this. The king has come, and he is coming again. He has come, and he is coming again. So this message is prophetic. And then lastly, this book is, is personal. It's a personal exhortation. It's a letter. Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. This book is a letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. But because the number seven, complete or perfect, is intended to be received and obeyed by the universal church, meaning it's for us as well. It was for literal seven churches, but it's also for us. It's meant for us today. And this book was written in a way where first century brothers and sisters could read it, or even better, they could hear it because most of them were illiterate. They couldn't read. They could hear it and obey it. Therefore, we need to be careful not to overcomplicate these words. Let me say it again. Let's be careful not to overcomplicate. The book of Revelation can be understood, and we have the Holy Spirit to help us understand it. Let me give you a, a little thought here. When it comes to reading through the Word of God, sometimes we come across things that are hard for us to understand. Let me just give you a little thought. When it comes to studying the Bible, always move from that which is clear to the obscure. Don't move from the obscure to the clear. If you try to do that, you'll mess up even the clear. Move from what you know to be true, and then move outward. And then understand the things that you don't necessarily understand, they have to be in line with what you know to be true. So the Bible can never contradict itself. One, you know, we cannot take one verse out of context. Um, one verse has to be applied in light of all of Scripture. So make sure we're doing that, and we start with what we know to be true. Too many times Christians use this example. Well, I just can't understand it, so I don't do anything. Well, start with what you know. The problem is we don't want to start with what we know because we know exactly what the Word of God is telling us to do. We'd rather say, well, there's things I can't understand, so I'm not going to do any of it. Really? Do what you know. And here's the deal. If, if you do what you know, the other things will either make sense or you'll realize they're not as important. They're not as important as you're making them to be. So this is the construction of this revelation, which leads us, secondly, to the interpretations of this revelation. I know this whole message is different so far, and it's going to get a little deeper today. For in order for us to interpret these prophecies, we must have a method of interpretation. Now, unfortunately for us, there are many, and they are contrary Approaches. I'm going to just fly through this real quick and just kind of show you what are some um, different ways of interpretation for this book that many people of God have held to. There is the preterist method, which believes that all the events have been fulfilled in the first 400 years of church history. 
So proponents of this view contend that the further you get from the first century, the further you get from the events of Revelation. They believe that the major prophecies of this book, beginning in chapter 1 all the way to mid-chapter 20, were fulfilled either in the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 or in the fall of Rome in A.D. 476. The problem is this interpretation makes the book of Revelation irrelevant for us. Then you have the historical method, which Revelation is a panorama of church history from John's day to the return of Christ, mainly with the emphasis on the Western world. And so what has happened from that standpoint, and this is the world many of us live in. This is the way many of us interpret um, the book of Revelation as a historical method. So from that, what you have is throughout time, throughout the course, um, there have been many, many, many different popes in the Catholic Church. They're the Antichrist and the church itself is the false prophet or we have Hitler's the Antichrist or Napoleon or in the 80s it was Gorbachev and that thing on his head was the mark of the beast I mean there's all kind of different crazy interpretations only a few of you got that get into your history book and then you'll laugh a little later um, at that but you know, there's so many different things yet this interpretation makes the book irrelevant to the first century church then you have the idealist method, which is the interpretation that Revelation is a symbolic portrayal of the conflict between God and Satan, between good and evil, between the church and, or Christ and his church and the forces of sin and evil reflected in every age. So there's a cosmic battle taking place in the church in every age. And then you have the futurist method, which events described belong to the future age and constitute a marvelous prophecy, meaning that beginning with either chapter 4 or chapter 6, the events described belong to the future age and constitute a marvelous prophecy that will lead to the consummation of the age. And as we think about that, I know the question that comes into your mind, what, well, which one's right? Or which one do you think is right, Micah, because we pay you to tell us that? And, or if you were to put a gun to my head and ask me to pick one, although that would be a very aggressive thing to do, all you got, got to do is ask, and I would gladly tell you. But if you were to ask me to pick one, or what interpretation do I prefer, I prefer Revelation 119. In Revelation 119, Jesus says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, meaning things that have already happened, those that are, meaning those that are happening right when John is receiving this revelation, and those that are to take place after this. So I believe Revelation includes things that happened before John wrote. It includes things that were happening as John wrote. But a majority of it being things which were to and are to come. But then think about different interpretations. Don't even get me started on different interpretations about the rapture. Do we believe in pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or the millennial reign of Christ? Are we pre-millennial or all-millennial or post-millennial? There's so many different ways to interpret. And here's the deal. There's going to be things that I'm going to say throughout this journey that maybe you disagree with. Maybe you have always heard differently. And get this, it's okay to disagree about the book of Revelation. This should not be a book that ever divides any church whatsoever. Here's the deal. Maybe you might view one way and I might view another. Can, can we agree that Jesus is coming back? If we can't agree to that, then we have problems. But if we can view all of our beliefs by the standpoint of Christ is coming back, then we can keep the main thing the main thing, which is the important thing. So that's the interpretation of this revelation, which leads us 
to the intention of this revelation. So the intention of this revelation. So what's the point of this revelation? What is Jesus trying to tell? The, what, what is he trying to tell the church in the first century? What is, is he trying to tell us? And look at verses 1 through 3 on the screen. The revelation of Jesus Christ, he made it known to John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. As we read and go through this series, we need to be reminded that there were seven literal churches that are being addressed by Christ through John. And we need to put ourselves in their shoes in the first century. Imagine that you live in a day as they did when proclaiming Christ involves threat, pain, and loss. You face danger on every side. Imagine living in a world that the closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to persecution. The closer you are to Him, the closer you are to experiencing the things that He experienced in His life. And then think about the guy who's writing these words. The Apostle John. Now here's what we know. Of the 11 remaining disciples after Judas, all but one of them, all but the Apostle John died for their faith were martyred, were killed for their faith. But the Apostle John, even though he wasn't killed for his faith, he was persecuted severely for his faith. But here's what we know. Somehow, God had an amazing way of also preserving John. There was an occasion where Domitian, the Roman emperor, made John drink poison, and he was not harmed. There was another instance where John was brought, according to tradition, into the Roman Colosseum, and there was a vat of boiling oil. And John was thrown into it as everybody sat around and as the emperor watched on, expecting John just to boil up and die. Yet, John didn't die. He began to proclaim the gospel. In my, in my crazy little mind, I think back to the cartoon days of Bugs Bunny when he was caught and placed in the stew and he's swimming around eating carrots. I can just see in my mind John kind of doing that, floating on his back and then standing up and proclaiming the gospel. But because of that, people began to believe the gospel. So the emperor sent um, John to the island of Patmos. Now this wasn't a resort where John sat around in a hammock drinking um, drinks with umbrellas in it. No, the island of Patmos was a, a, a place, it was a rock quarry where prisoners were sent. And what they would do all day long is they would take rocks and they would carry them miles to, to ships. So John, at, at 90 years old, was sent to basically a detention camp where he had to work in this way. And it was at this place, being persecuted for Christ, punished for Christ, that he received this vision. Again, think about the church, seven churches of individuals who are being in prison and killed. And then think about this. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all the persecution, all the difficulty, all the pain, your Savior speaks clearly to you. He walks powerfully with you. And here's what we all know, or maybe you're just going to find this out today. We live in a world, in a noisy, distracting world world which incessantly screams for our attention and the problem is we're raising individuals who believe that whoever screamed the loudest must be true as long as you scream the loudest what you have to say must be relevant so we have this world that's screaming for our attention and it seems as if the word of God isn't screaming as all the people of God aren't as loud but in the book of revelation Jesus screams back 
And he reminds his people that he is Lord, that he is with us, and that he is coming again. This is the point. Yes, Jesus uses imagery. He uses symbolism, things that are bizarre to us. But Jesus isn't trying to confuse us. He's trying to encourage us. Again, John, John's not writing a step-by-step narration to the end time of all of our answers, of every question about when Jesus will return. Rather, he was calling the first century Christians and us to be faithful to Christ no matter what comes. That's the intention of this revelation. You want to know what the intention of revelation is? To call you today, right where you are, to be faithful to him no matter what comes. No matter what comes. Listen, we'll always understand and apply revelation better when we ask, how am I being called to be faithful to Jesus right now? How am I being called to be faithful to Jesus right now? Brothers and sisters, sometimes there are, there are times where people can become so heavenly minded, they become no earthly good. They get so focused on all the things of Revelation, the end times, all of these things. Sometimes I believe we're like the disciples who came to Jesus in Acts 1 and says, tell us when it's going to happen. Tell us, is it is now, is it coming? Is it going to happen? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know. Jesus basically looked at his disciples and said, it's none of your business. Follow me. Do what you're supposed to do. Be faithful as the Holy Spirit pours out power upon you. This is the intention to make us faithful now. And then lastly, let's look at the direction of this revelation. The direction, and please hear me this morning. As we go through this book, there will be many opportunities for us to become focused on secondary things to to where we miss the primary things. If we're not careful, we're going to become consumed with dragons and beasts and harlots, or we'll put all of our attention on the mark of the beast and we'll refuse to use barcodes at Walmart because they're of the Antichrist, or we'll be consumed with four horsemen and two witnesses or letters, seals, bowls, trumpets. And we'll make all of those things primary. But let me, on week one of this series, beg us as a faith family to keep our eyes on the center of this revelation. And what is the center? Jesus. For this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So where is the direction? What are we pursuing in this book? And let me give you three things in closing from what we just read in verses 4 through 8. First of all, we are pursuing the greatness of God. We are pursuing the greatness of God. Don't miss through this book the greatness of God. John, opening greeting. Look at verses 4 through 8 as you see on the screen of 4 and 5 and 8. It says, grace to you and peace from Him. That's God the Father who is and was and is to come. From the seven spirits. That's the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ. So you want to begin by looking at the greatness of God? We look at the Trinity. The triune God, it blows our minds. Explain the Trinity, you will lose your mind. Deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. But we see the greatness of God. And then verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John is showing us the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God. And notice what John doesn't do in verses 4 and 8. We would expect John or God to say, from him who is and who was and who is to come. But it, or who was, who is, and who is to come. But instead, who is. He starts with who is and then presently. 
then who was, and then who is to come. It's not an order that we would have chosen. So what is John doing? And don't miss this. The emphasis of the book of Revelation is not on the God who was, not on the God who will be. It's on the God who is with us now. That's the emphasis of this book, the God who is with us right this moment. He's not just a past God. He's not just a future God. He is a present God. He is sovereign. He's supreme. And He's the Almighty. Therefore, when we look at verse 1 and it says these are things that must take place, guess what that means? That it must take place. It's going to happen. It must happen. It has to happen because number one, God can't lie. And number two, God can't fail. It has to happen. God is sovereign. He's going to make it so. So in the book of Revelation, if we're not careful, here's how we look at it. We see that, um, Revelation as dualism, as a battle between good and evil. And sometimes Satan wins and sometimes God wins. And we're left just to bite our fingernails. Or it's like the beginning of, of Star Wars in a time far, far away. And we start reading of all this uh, cosmic battle going on and who's going to win and all this kind of stuff. And here's what we miss. If you see the book of Revelation in that way, you miss the point. This isn't dualism. This is domination. God wins. This is the greatness of our God. He wins. He always wins. He doesn't know how to lose. Guess who knows how to lose? I do. Guess who else knows how to lose? We do. Guess who doesn't know how to lose? God doesn't. He doesn't. We're pursuing the greatness of our God, but then secondly, we're pursuing the gospel of our God. We're pursuing the gospel. As we go through this book, don't miss the gospel. The gospel is not just the theme of every book. It's the theme of this book, and it's sandwiched in between the picture of God. Look at verses 5 through 7. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin. So he's freed us from sin. Not just forgiven us from sin, he's freed us from sin. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And don't miss what the gospel tells us because it is absolutely beautiful. Here in verse 5, we see something that is absolutely insane and incredible, and we need to wrap our minds around it. And that is this. When it says that Jesus here, it says he loves us. Don't miss that. To him who loves us. Let me tell you something that maybe we don't think about. This is the only time in all of the New Testament where the love of Christ is presented to us in a present term. Every other time the love of God is presented in the New Testament is in past tense. He loved us. He proved his love for us. This is the first time and only time in the New Testament where the love of Christ for us is given in the present tense. Now you might say, well, why is that a big deal? Let me tell you why it's a big deal. Because maybe today, perhaps just maybe, your life is in shambles. Perhaps your life isn't going the way you envisioned it, the way you planned it. Perhaps you're financially hurting. Perhaps your body is suffering from chronic pain or terminal disease. And all of these things stir in your heart the question, does God really love me? And in that moment, we need to hear John answer us, oh, yes, not only has he he loved you, he is loving you right now. He loves you. 
The reality that we must come to know, experience, and enjoy is that God doesn't just love a past version of you. God doesn't just love a future version of you when you get it all right. God loves the present version of you, screw-ups and all. That should have gotten at least more than two amens. God loves you no matter how bad you screw up. As we said a few weeks ago, there's nothing you can do to make God love you less, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. He loves you. Oh, how he loves you right now. This is what the gospel declares. So as we walk through this book, don't be distracted away from the gospel. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. And then lastly, we are pursuing through this book the goal of our God. So what is the goal of our God? What's the goal of God from beginning all the way to the end? And the answer is this. According to verse 6, the goal of our God is his glory. His glory. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. According to the Word of God, why were we created? For the glory of God. Why were we saved? For the glory of God. Why are we sanctified? For the glory of God. What will we experience in eternity forever? The glory of God. As we walk through this book, brothers and sisters, May we desire blessings that come from God to those who hear and obey. May we find present comfort in the love of God for us. May we desire above everything else the glory of our God. And may we long for the consummation of every biblical promise that finds its end in this book. And may we say along with John, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. The first words in this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see it here. It's about him. But Jesus' role in this book doesn't just stop there. He's the hero of revelation. The next 22 chapters, we'll see Jesus has risen from the dead. He reigns on the throne. He's redeemed mankind through his blood, setting us free. And he has promised he is coming again. And brothers and sisters, if we believe those things to be true, then we should seek above everything else communion with him. Even if it means to get closer with Jesus means to get closer to persecution or closer to pain or closer to difficulty. The book of Revelation is an opportunity for us to explore the depths of God who created us, who loves us, and who redeemed us and who will come for us. And look on the screen. Who wouldn't want to study a book like that? Oh, to God that we will put our hearts on studying him, looking to Jesus. Don't miss the main point of this book. Don't miss him. In the weeks to come, we're going to see a lot of different things. We're going to apply it in a lot of different ways. But ultimately, we pray that we keep our eyes on that which is constant, that which is eternal, and that which is to be gloried in with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls, and that is him. Oh, to God, that we would, from the beginning of this series, say, Lord, help me not to get taken aside. Help me not to slip from the path. Help me to keep my eyes on you. I'm not saying it's not going to get deep over the next few and several weeks, because it's going to get deep. I'm not saying that um, there's not going to be times where we're going to hear things and we're like, that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But in all of those moments, may we never forget our God wins. He wins. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to ask the musicians to come forward.
We're going to enter into this time of invitation and consecration. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. You are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end and everything in between. We thank you that you are the one who is with us now. You're the one who was. You are the one who is to come. You are the Almighty. Lord, we just pray through this series that you would help us to understand the intent of this book and that we would be faithful be faithful witnesses. We be faithful to you, O oh God. That we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him even endured the cross. So that we can endure any situation as our eyes are on him. Lord, just continue to, to stir in our midst. And Lord, I pray for any today who don't know you or any today who the enemy has convinced, God, that your love for them is just a, a past reality or maybe a future reality when they get their lives in order. Oh, God, may you through your spirit speak right now to them and show them that your love is a present love. It isn't dependent on what we do. It's not dependent on something that's going to happen later on. It's, it's, Lord, we can bank on it. In the past, you proved it. But, Lord, we, we can bank on it in the future, God. But we also know, Lord, that your love is with us now. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for who you are. Just finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen.